From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When we think of law, we think of law with a capital L. Law is what happens on the playground. Today, the first black dean of the University of Colorado Law School, and only the second woman in that role, Lolita Buckner Innes. Law is when six kids see a stray ball, and one of them says, hey, I see a ball. And the second one says, I'll bet I can get it first, and he runs fast and he gets it. And you know what? Oddly enough, that's the state of the common law about who would get the ball as well, meaning we're doing law all the time. Dean Ennis reflects on her family's early brushes with the law, on how to make the student pipeline more diverse, and on critical race theory in the classroom. Critical theory relates very closely to the notion of critical thinking. You're used to monthly bills, monthly subscriptions, monthly fees, and you know paying for things over time makes the total cost more manageable. It's one reason most CPR donors give monthly, and it's also why many members are able to grow their support incrementally and make small adjustments that fit their budgets. If now is a good time to increase your monthly contribution by a few dollars, email membership at CPR.org. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. She is the first black dean of CU's law school. And Lolita Buckner Innes is only the second woman in that job, which she began in July. Innes brings expertise in legal history, feminist legal theory, and critical race theory. We talked about her career path and how the law is around us every day. Dean Innes, welcome to the program. Thank you so very much. You came to Colorado from the law school at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. You were born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, But you have some deep roots in Colorado. Tell me about your great-great-grandfather. Yes. My great-great-grandfather came to Colorado and eventually ended up in the Denver area not long after the U.S. Civil War. Uh, He was a member of the 116th Colored Infantry during the Civil War. That particular unit saw service at Appomattox, including um, at Appomattox Courthouse. So he had heard, I'm told by family members, that Colorado was a wonderful place for recently freed enslaved people. And so he headed out this way. And he and his family were there for the next half century or so. My father's mother, my grandmother, was the last of that branch that was, in fact, born here, right in Denver's Five Points. In Five Points, right, known as the Harlem of the West, that plays into your family story. Have you been able to stroll through Five Points yet? I have. uh, Not too long after I took the seat as dean, I went out to Five Points, and I actually went out uh, with some folks from CU Boulder, It was amazing. I hadn't ever been to Denver except for maybe conferences. And yet walking around that five points area, it felt so familiar that it was positively creepy. But it was Hmm. a wonderful experience. When you look back on your childhood, were there signs that you were an attorney in the making? Very possibly. Certainly, I was the sort of child who... It's not fair to say that I didn't take no for an answer. I took no, but I, I needed a, I highly annotized no from my parents. And so uh, I wanted a full understanding of the reasoning that they 
had entered into in order to reach no. Um, I also wanted to understand whether and when I might get a yes and what were the conditions that I might change that would make no into a yes. And so probably very early on in my childhood, that tended to characterize me. Later on, when I got to elementary school and certainly middle school, I was typically the kid that was chosen to play judge uh, in school programs, in history class. When did the notion that you could have a career doing this as an attorney, for instance, enter your mind? I mean, did you know attorneys growing up? Um, Was that a word that was in your orbit? I had heard of attorneys, largely, I would have to say, uh, because I came from a very working class and poor family who also sadly had too much of a relationship with law and the criminal justice system. So certainly I had heard uh, of attorneys, at least in that context. However, I never knew any attorneys growing up. Honestly, the first time I actually knew and spoke with and had any sort of relationship with an attorney is when I got to law school at UCLA, which is astounding for some people. I just didn't know any of those people. They were not in my family. They were not in my community. And so I I had a lot to learn. <laughs> is there anything about your families and your early brushes with the legal system that you'd like to share with us uh, insofar as it might have shaped your view of the justice system and whether it was just. Wow, that's interesting. I hmm, I recently did a short essay for a symposium. And in that essay, I actually talk about the first time that I actually heard the word rape. Uh, I was about six years old. I was living with my aunt and her 10 children and several other cousins My mother had placed me there because she was divorced. She was having difficulty taking care of my sister and I. And she simply thought that it would be better for us if she spent some time alone, really trying to put her life back together. So my oldest male cousin, a boy that we used to call Junior, he was my aunt's lieutenant. He took care of everyone in the family. So I was six. I guess Junior must have been about 16 or 17 years old. He was the de facto head of the family. Junior, one of the things that he did to make money was to work as a house cleaner for a family in our community. And at that time, we were living in what was semi-rural L.A. County, Pomona, California, with which you might be familiar. We were essentially the only black family out there. I mean, from probably the 60s when she got there to maybe the 80s when she left, there were relatively few black people in that part of Los Angeles County. So we lived out there, lots of kids, not terribly much discipline, and my cousin was doing this cleaning. So he comes home one day and the police come to my aunt's house. And they said that my cousin Junior had been accused of raping the 13-year-old girl who lived in the house. Now, that was the absolute first time I'd heard that word. And I could not get any clarity whatsoever from anybody, my older cousins, my aunt and uncle, what this meant. All I knew was that from my perspective, knowing Junior, I was sure it was a bad thing. That much was true. And it was apparently something that happened to girls or women. I figured that part out. But knowing Junior, this was the kindest, gentlest person you could ever meet. And so even with my six-year-old mind, I could not just conceive of him being accused of something. 
He was not arrested that day, but the police came a lot. We went to court a lot. In fact, from Pomona, we went down to the uh, Los Angeles County Courthouse. That was probably my first memory of going downtown. All of the kids hanging out of this ancient station wagon. I am sure that might have been the first time that people looked at us in a way that I think was probably judging us based on our race and also based on believe me, what was our apparent poverty. And so I had this real feeling that the justice system, it didn't value and it certainly didn't respect people like us because there was this assumption that there was this whole group of awful people. That's the way I felt. This must have gone on for months. And then finally, I guess the charges were dismissed. Somehow they weren't uh, substantiated. Looking back, I imagine this was probably through the, the juvenile justice system because Junior was young. And for my young mind, justice meant just showing up over and over again and hoping that nothing happened to you. And I think as I got older, I felt that, if anything, I wanted more control over justice or at least the processes of justice. So mm. I, I would say that's probably the very first time that I had any significant thought about courts, law, justice, and that has stuck with me forever. I wonder if you might give us, because we I mentioned feminist legal theory in our introduction, Would you give us a working definition of that and help us understand how that theory relates to modern legal life? Huh. It was a long time uh, after I'd been a lawyer and even a few years after I had been working as a law professor that I really started to think about, read, study feminist legal theory, or even define some of my work that way. So It turns out, especially when I look back at some of my earliest writings, it turns out that I was always a feminist legal theorist and I just didn't know it. I think feminist legal theory asks us to think about the norms, the substance, the process of law. It asks us to look at all of that and ask what I will call the woman question, or at least the the woman identified person question, meaning how do women figure here? How, if at all, are women participating, or I might also say not participating in these processes. Where might we apply that? Give me an example. I would say a case that comes out of the 1960s in the city of East Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, There is this reasonably well-known case called Moore versus the city of East Cleveland. I believe it took place in the late 1960s. The city was one of the nation's premier suburbs when it was founded in the 1920s or so. In fact, when East Cleveland was founded, much of the land surrounding it and upon which the city sat used to be Rockefeller family land. There are lovely suburbs, garden suburbs that sort of grow up based upon that wealth starting I'd say after World War II and rapidly in the 50s and 60s, that starts to decline as wealthier, whiter people start to move out. So you've got the city of East Cleveland fearing what a lot of cities are fearing in the 1960s, and that is white flight and the influx of Black families, and especially Black families that are headed by women. And again, this is not really discussed either in the case or in much of the surrounding studies. Very often, Black women would be the people in their communities who could amass the money. They were the figures around whom the family would sort of gather. They would pool money, and they would often use those resources to move to suburban homes, like in East Cleveland, Ohio. Well, the city decided that they did not like what was happening. They saw many multi-generational families headed by women, largely Black women, 
And so they passed a law that created this incredibly arcane definition of family, meaning if there were children in the house and grandchildren, you had to be directly related to them in ways that only genealogists perhaps could understand. And so the bottom line is that the woman in the case, she's living there with two sons and a grandchild, I think. And I think the grandchild was not the child of any of the two adult children in the house. Mm. This violated city law. This case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and often it's cited now for what the definition of family is and the extent to which or whether municipalities can make laws that interfere with familial living norms and structures, etc. So it's a really important case. However, neither in the case itself nor in a lot of the earliest commentary about that case does anyone talk about the fact that the woman in the case about whom all of this is written no one mentions her gender very much and certainly no one mentions her race but largely gender the idea that a woman a grandmother a parent um, would need or want to gather family around her in a way that's often common in women-headed families that probably would have been useful in the discussion of that case at least in the discussion of the extent to which or whether norms and laws that strike often at women are created, and yet that was never said. So a feminist legal theory approach to that case would call out the fact that even ostensibly sympathetic Supreme Court justices who voted to strike down that municipal code, they never talk about femininity or women or women-headed families, and they certainly don't talk about race. So feminist legal theory, and indeed, I would say this is also true of critical race theory, because they're sort of similar in that respect, invite us to ask questions. You mentioned critical race theory. It's a topic I'd like to broach with you. It's also a loaded term these days. I also think it's misunderstood what its intent is, perhaps. Is there room for critical race theory at the University of Colorado Law School? Uh, Absolutely, there is room for critical race theory at the University of Colorado Law School. There is room for critical race theory, certainly, I would say, not only at every law school in the nation, but but, but at every institution of higher learning. And let me emphasize that. When, when we talk about critical race theory, and this is an example of where I think there's a lot of confusion, this is not doctrine or approaches that we're teaching to kindergartners or even to fifth or tenth graders. We're talking about creating approaches to law and society, I would say, the sorts of approaches that typically happen in the post-high school world. And so that's first and foremost, where people are standing up at school boards and saying, I don't want my seven-year-old learning critical race theory. and and, And I yearn to reach into the television or radio and say, that's not happening and probably won't happen. And I guess next, when you ask, is there room for it? Critical race theory is actually a subset of a much broader set of theoretical inquiries that are typically called critical theory. And I might even add that critical theory relates very closely to the notion of critical thinking, meaning we're really asking people to loosen their embrace on the idea of universal norms of anything. That doesn't mean that the things that we've been declaring as truths for a millennia aren't true or aren't accurate or aren't useful approaches. It means that we're now going to question them. We're going to ask ourselves, for example, 
again, let's take something from the criminal law. When we talk about the idea of the justice system and we talk about this binary typically of guilty, not guilty, critical race theory and indeed critical theory would ask ourselves, does it make sense to structure a justice system with this really rather rigid binary that doesn't necessarily explain what goes on in, I would argue, the vast majority of cases. And certainly critical race theory would ask you to ask those questions, particularly from the dynamic or from the perspective of race. I'd like to talk a bit about the pandemic and how it is influencing both the legal education and the law. Just a few examples of some things we've covered, Dean, uh, in the last several months. Video hearings that were permissible under COVID has made, in some instances, court more accessible to people who otherwise might have transportation issues or schedule issues in showing up to court. We covered recently a new law that protects families whose kids are remote learning. Uh, This was after a young black child was playing with his toy gun. It was seen on video and officers were dispatched to his home. So I wonder if you see ways that COVID has reshaped the law, the legal system, and perhaps legal education. Well, I would certainly say absolutely the COVID-19 pandemic has reshaped by necessity the, the ways that we think about justice and the justice system. They are, we, we think of them as abstracts. And as you, you mentioned, for example, you know, Lady Justice, she's blindfold, she has her scales. In point of fact, justice as in the justice system, it can be a very pragmatic, sometimes harsh, even at times inaccessible set of processes that not everybody gets to participate in, notwithstanding sort of generalized claims about having one stay in court. So yes, the fact that we've had the COVID-19 pandemic that has caused some courts uh, and other tribunals to open up to remote hearings, I think that's tremendous. And and I think some of that stuff is not going to go away for the simple fact that if we can admit more people into these processes, if we can get through them more quickly, then we are actually doing justice. Well, and and you also mentioned uh, the case of the young man uh, whose teacher, I believe it was, you know, sort of looked into his home during remote learning and thought she saw a dangerous weapon and there were sort of all sorts of things that were brought to bear on the young man. That's particularly interesting to me because some of the work that I've done is around what I call legal geography, the whole idea of law and space and place. Whether it's having remote court hearings or it's having an educational endeavor happen remotely, having someone spy something inside of your home um, and then decide to call out the law, you're breaching boundaries. You're, you're, you're breaching geographies. I mean, one of the good things that we might have said, for example, about the space of the courthouse or the classroom is that they were, at least for all intents and purposes, discrete spaces. Regardless of what you might have in your home, mostly nobody else could get to see it. <laughs> um, and, and the same thing is true of sort of courtroom processes. While it's true that Fortunately, if I could do a remote hearing, I get to be at home, but suddenly I have to worry about the fact that the courtroom is now in my home, just as anyone who's looking remotely behind me could see I have things on the shelf, 
there is an extent to which, for example, I've curated that space behind me. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's a geography of remote learning and remote law. So that's a whole other discussion that I think we're going to have to talk about. And so then finally you say, how might COVID-19 and the pandemic and potentially remote learning, how does that affect law school in, in similar ways? Mm. And the blurring of those lines that used to be, this is home, this is classroom, this is yes. courtroom, this is classroom. Yes. One last question. You mentioned that it wasn't until later in your life that you knew and were acquainted with attorneys and uh, maybe even that concept hard and fast. It makes me wonder about the law school pipeline mm -hmm. that in a way, when you reach someone who is contemplating law school, mm -hmm. uh, it's already too late. You've missed people who might not have even considered it. Mm -hmm. Is there mm -hmm. a way as a dean of a law school to crawl back the pipeline to a place where you might touch people who'd never seen themselves at the bench or on the bench? Absolutely. Colorado Law, a number of other law schools, you know, we host programs where we try to go into elementary schools or high schools. But for me as a dean, I try to make manifest what I do and the kind of work I do and what that means to almost anybody that I encounter who will listen, especially young people. And I think going out even for programs like Junior Achievement, which is interesting because that tends to be for entrepreneurial children. Um, and I think we don't necessarily think about the professions, you know, medicine, dentistry, lawyering. We don't think about that as being entrepreneurial in the same way. And, and yet, of course, it is. It is you know, maybe the quintessential entrepreneurship. I have a very young neighbor. He's five years old. He's just a wonderfully independent fellow. So he's walking all around the block. And every now and then, I'll stop and I'll talk with him. And I'll say, I had an interesting day at work. And he'll say, what did you do? And I'll tell him in, in very simple terms. And he gets it. Uh, this is the thing. Law, when we think of law, we think of law with a capital L. Law is what happens on the playground. You know, law is when six kids see a stray ball and one of them says, hey, I see a ball. And the second one says, I'll bet I can get it first. And he runs fast and he gets it. And you know what? Oddly enough, that's the state of the common law about who would get the ball as well. Meaning we're doing law all the time. Pipelining has to do with having those conversations, whether it's with young children or I would also add with adults and reminding them of what law is, you know, so that they, it's not so remote from them. Dean, you make me want to go to law school. Then I am doing my job. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Lolita Buckner-Innes, the first black dean of the CU Law School and only the second woman. She's also the author of a book about her alma mater, The Princeton Fugitive Slave, The Trials of James Collins Johnson. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. I'll be back. I haven't enrolled in law school yet. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Branson, Colorado has a population of 57. It also has a solid high school football team. But for the longest time, the team was playing on the worst football field in America. There was a bunch of gopher holes, snake holes. Then a fundraising effort for a new field went international. We, they literally, we had donations from Australia. 
and they were on board for it. They said, hey, we need to help these kids out. A Colorado field of dreams. Read the story and see pictures at CPR.org. Meow Wolf, Denver, a kind of Alice through the Looking Glass art playground, opened to the public over the weekend. Hundreds of artists worked for four years to make Convergence Station a reality. It's a space-themed experience packed with secret rooms and hidden stories. Meow Wolf also has locations in Santa Fe and Las Vegas. One of its co-founders is Katie Kennedy. She's an artist in her own right who has experimented with immersive art since her time at the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD. She moved to Santa Fe just before co-founding Meow Wolf the following year. And welcome to Colorado Matters, Katie. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here. Can you help us gauge the demand for Meow Wolf Denver so far? I mean, we sold out the first couple of days. The first day tickets went on sale, I think. Sold something wild like 60,000 tickets within the first three days of having tickets on sale mostly from Colorado, which is really cool. Um, We definitely have a following all around the country, but I guess Coloradans have been very excited for this to open. I suppose to some extent we're within the orbit of the Santa Fe Meow Wolf. I know there are folks who've just hoped it would come a little closer to home. There are four worlds within Convergence Station. Did you oversee all of them or take charge of just one? I just had one. I mean, you know, we all worked together and especially earlier on, we worked together a whole lot more on the development of all of the worlds and also on curating the artists into all of the smaller rooms. And then we kind of went off into our own worlds. Into your own worlds. Literally, figuratively, um, (laughs) in a kind of progressive way. As I mentioned, you're a co-founder, a creative director, and tell us about the world that you immersed yourself in as the project progressed? Sure, yeah. The project that I was the creative director for is called Numina. And Numina is the largest space that we've ever built. It's about 5,000 square feet and three stories tall. And on the third floor of the building, which is really just one of the strangest things about a lot of the spaces in Convergence Station is that you go up get to something that looks very much like it should be on the ground a constantly confusing thing even our own people who've been working there for a while keep going into the stairwell and just going the wrong direction to get to something (laughs) Um, but Numina is a organic landscape it is a character and a universe at the same time it's a living universe and it is best described as a six-dimensional plant a six-dimensional, a plant like a natural growing plant, or do you mean like a, a, yes. a power plant? Yes. Okay, okay. Like a natural growing plant. Um, it is a very green space. It looks like a landscape, but it is like one living space. Uh, there are also performers in these spaces who interact with guests. How do they further yeah. the story? It's pretty different per space. Some of the spaces have people who live there and who have their own part in the dramas of that world. There are also people who are more like caretakers or even like enthusiasts. So the performers in Numina are 
they don't really live there. It, like they could arguably never leave, <laughs> but there aren't like houses or anywhere to like camp or live. When you take into account the performers and then the hundreds of artists who created these worlds, I'm just curious if there is a management philosophy you follow to corral all of that creative energy into a unified experience. That is probably the hardest part of all of this is, you know, there are people who know how to build big things. There are people who know how to put on performances or to build buildings. And there are lots of people out there who know how to organize different groups. And the way that we're approaching and the way that we've been approaching organizing what we do is been very emergent (laughs) and has had to change so constantly that we haven't really even had the time or space to settle on anything that totally works because we're growing so fast and we're trying so many different things that we're still trying to figure out what the best way is (laughs) to manage all of this because, you know, we don't want to just take something from the familiar business world because part of what we wanted to do was escape that. And that is incredibly hard. We, we all live in a society that is really built around the now familiar capitalist way of doing things and trying to do something else, especially if you're trying to work with outside contractors and people who just have to be in this world and use money and live in the high rent areas and all these things like you can't just deny you can't just step away from capitalism and business as it works you have to find a way to use it to launch yourself out of it is just briefly is uh meow wolf for profit or non-profit for profit we're a b corp a b corp okay Well, there have been some bumps along the road. I mean, I think of the lawsuit from a former Denver employee over gender discrimination. The Santa Fe location has dealt with issues around lost wages. How do you think Meow Wolf has changed to address concerns like those? Um, Doing right by our people is a constant priority And there are hundreds of us and we can't get everything right all the time. So we always need to accept something going wrong as a challenge to figure out how to do it right. But I don't have particular answers for you on reactions to those lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. We met three local artists who were a part of Meow Wolf Denver. Uh, and they brought a flavor of old Denver uh, with nods to the Cinderella City Mall, Celebrity Sports Center. I wonder, Katie, did you set out to make sure that there was a nod to place when you were creating this? Well, that's one of the main reasons it's so important to include artists from where we are working is that if we were to do that we would probably get it wrong but if we include artists who live and have lived for a long time in the areas that we're building then they get to stand for 
their community. They get to say what their community wants to hear. I am curious how we might expect to see Convergence Station evolve over time. That is to say, if I went now and then I went five years from now, is it largely going to be the same experience or does this kind of reinvent itself every so often? You know, it's going to be some of both. There are going to be some things that are very close to the same, but very slightly evolved, just based on maintenance and like minor upgrades. And then there will be a lot of things that are new. We have a lot of space left to grow into over time. Not a ton, but a really healthy amount of space Hmm. so that over the coming years, we can add new things in spaces that are already open and simply build fresh off of the sides of the spaces that are already open. There's room to grow. That's good for something that uh, resembles a plant. Thank you so much for being with us. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for having me. Katie Kennedy is a co-founder of Meow Wolf, whose new Denver location is called Convergence Station and features hundreds of artists, many from Colorado. As coal plants close across the country, many communities stand to lose jobs and property taxes. That includes Hayden in northwest Colorado, population 2,000. A power plant there is slated to retire in less than a decade. But instead of demolishing the facility, it could find new life as a massive battery. From CPR's climate team, here's Sam Brash. It's happy hour when Hayden Town Manager Matthew Mendisco walks into Yampa Valley Brewing Company. Right away, it's clear he's a regular. Before heading to the bar, he gets his own personal mug off a wall. Yeah, it's a mug, uh, mug club. Oh, they give you a blank one, and then you put the stickers or whatever. Mendisco and I take a seat outside. He says the brewery is a glimpse of a new Hayden, the hip, cheaper neighbor of Steamboat Springs with its ski lifts and mega mansions. But that's the future. At the moment, the bedrock of Hayden's tax base is still Hayden Generating Station, a decades-old coal-fired power plant. It's 55% for the school and our hospital district, our cemetery district, our library district, I mean, take your pick. And it's going away soon. Last year, Mendisco says he got a call from executives at Excel Energy, Colorado's largest power company. They said they plan to stop burning coal at the plant eight years ahead of schedule to meet their climate goals. But it wasn't some, you know, yeah, we're going to retrain you to go be this or whatever. They're like, hey, we think we can do this right. In this case, doing it right meant preserving part of the plant as a molten salt energy storage system. I know that's a mouthful. But Excel executive Jack Eiley says it's really about the biggest problem with renewable energy. Which is how do we get through uh, long periods of time without burning fossil fuels and emitting carbon dioxide emissions? See, the wind and the sun have this annoying tendency to disappear with the weather. That's why energy storage is crucial for any transition to renewables. Excel's plan is to use extra solar and wind power to melt salt at Hayden Station. Then, when customers turn on the lights or washing machines, the heat could be converted back into electricity. And here's what Eiley sees as the best part. The system could be built with the old guts of a coal plant. So you would reuse the steam turbine, you'd reuse the transmission facilities that are connecting that plant to our grid, 
Um, you could reuse some of the water rights that we're currently using there uh, and, and just the footprint and the land around the plant. That means Hayden could keep some of its jobs and tax revenue. And while that might sound ideal, it's still an unproven plan, according to Craig Turchi, a thermal energy engineer with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. All the individual pieces are existing, technology proven, but putting it all together, there'll be a little bit of risk associated with that. But I think that's not a bad gamble. The thing is, Excel doesn't really gamble like other companies. Its customers can't exactly go choose another power provider. That's why the state regulates utilities to build reliable electricity for the cheapest price. But some want these big companies to experiment, especially in legacy coal towns that could be left behind by the energy transition. We want to give them the assurance of going forward with these projects in towns like Hayden. This is State Representative Dylan Roberts. The Democrat represents Hayden, and this year, he passed a bill to strike a balance. It says investor-owned utilities can ask to build novel technologies, but... They have to assume the risk of failure, and the ratepayers will never be financially responsible for um, a failed project. They will only um, have to pay for the energy if it actually produces green energy. A lot needs to happen before Excel builds the first U.S. molten salt plant in Hayden. A specific plan probably won't even get to regulators until next year. But town manager Matthew Mendisco says so far, it seems like the company isn't backing away. After all, it came to him with the plan, not the other way around. So that, to me at least, was a step forward and a step of trust. And as long as we all maintain that, I think we'll be great. And someday, he thinks Hayden might actually go from coal town to molten salt hotspot. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. When she talks about climate change, scientist Catherine Hayhoe has a powerful tool, her faith. Hayhoe is evangelical Christian and directs the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. On Tuesday, her new book, Saving Us, comes out. She says it makes the case for hope and healing in a world divided over more than just climate change. We spoke a few years ago when she was in Colorado to work with researchers here. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. In a recent editorial for Science Magazine, you wrote that the most effective thing I've done is to let people know that I'm a Christian. It's essential to connect the impacts of a changing climate directly to what's already meaningful in one's life. And for many people, faith is central to who they are. Uh, Would you give me an example of how that's been effective? Yes. So as scientists, we often have the reputation or the stereotype of being uh, godless liberal atheist tree huggers, and many of us certainly are. Um, But that means that for people who take their faith seriously and who have heard that climate is not changing or humans aren't responsible, it gives them an excuse to dismiss what scientists say. Whereas when I say, no, I share your faith, I believe, you know, pretty much the same things as you do, and I know that God's creation is telling us that the planet is warming and humans are responsible. That has a whole different impact because they can't dismiss me as being other. Do you modify your message or do you just merely introduce yourself as I'm one of you? On the science, absolutely, it's the same. It doesn't really matter whether we believe in this or that. A thermometer still tells us the same numbers. But you can't just stop by talking about the problem. You have to talk about why you care about it and what we can do to fix it. 
Why I care about a changing climate is because it disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable in this world who are already suffering from poverty and hunger and lack of access to clean water and other resources. And that connects directly to my faith. And then it leads us into talking about solutions that are consistent with the values that we have. But if I vote for politicians who want to abate climate change, I'm voting perhaps for pro-choice politicians or ones who believe in gay marriage uh, or ones who believe in many other things that are contrary to what I believe. Yes, you. I think you've hit the nail right on the head there. And that's why I appreciate the work of organizations like the Evangelical Environmental Network so much because they share with people how climate change is actually a pro-life issue. Life doesn't stop at birth. It continues all the way through to death. And if people really are pro-life and if pro-life is what really matters to them, then they need to be against pollution. They need to be against climate change. They need to be against all of the things that disproportionately, again, affect people who don't have the resources to deal with them. So that's a way of perhaps affecting the mindset of the voters. How do you affect the mindset of the leaders? Hmm. Honestly, I think that that is harder because their mindset is not so much on what they think is true or not. It's on what they think will get them elected or not. And that is a completely different thing. There are many people who would say, sure, you know, climate change is real, but I'm not going to stand up and say that. Or, you know, I might say, yes, it's real, but I'm not going to do anything about it because that won't get me reelected. So that's why solutions, I think, are so important, because if you can show the co-benefits, as we call it, of solutions. The fact that, for example, in Texas, where I live, wind energy supplies over 25,000 jobs. It is revitalizing small rural communities who are losing all their young people by providing new jobs and increasing the tax base. If you can show that there's solid short-term economic benefits to some of the solutions, then all of a sudden you have a whole different category of people on board. And a politician can say, you know, well, I'm not sure about this whole climate change thing, but I do know that wind energy is good for our community, so let's get behind it. And that's a completely different conversation. Now, you are very public about your religious beliefs, and I suspect that not all scientists, A, want to be public about their private lives, and B, may not be religious. Uh, They may be agnostic, or they may be atheist. Are there lessons in what you've learned about communicating the message of climate change for those who don't uh, either, one, share your religious values, or two, your openness? Yes, absolutely. The point is, is that we need to figure out how we can connect with people. And so for me, one of the most fundamental ways that I can connect with people, again, is is through my faith. But for others, it might be the simple fact that they live in the same community or that they're both parents or they might be members of the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club or they could be passionate skiers or birders or hikers. There's a million points of connection that we can make with people. Every single one of us, even scientists, we really are human. We have other interests outside the ivory tower. And it's a matter of connecting our heart to our head when we share with people. I was reading something from the late preacher Billy Graham. Let me quote it to you. People ask, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth again? Yes, I do. The Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again, and I don't see any other hope because we're heading towards a catastrophe in our world. Mm. And end quote. What do you say to people who, I don't know if the word is conflate 
the apocalyptic nature of climate change and the end times. Well, interestingly, in our Global Weirding series, which people can find on YouTube, the most popular episode we did was called, What Does the Bible Say About Climate Change? And this completely surprised me because all the other videos are about, you know, hurricanes or weather extremes. We did one video on what does the Bible say, and it addressed all of the most common religiously sounding myths that I get on a weekly and sometimes even daily basis. And one of those is the one you just mentioned. If the world is going to end anyways, why should we care? In mm. fact, some people would even go further and say, bring it on. This is moving us faster in the right, right direction. Right, Yes. And they do. I hear this all the time. So to respond to uh, objections that people think are based on the Bible, science isn't going to help us with that. We actually have to go to where they think this is coming from, the Bible. And what's fascinating, of course, is that human nature has not really changed much in 2,000 years. And in the New Testament, there was one church, and you know, Apostle, the Apostle Paul went around traveling and visiting and writing to all these early churches back in the day. There was one church who said, okay, well, if the world's going to end anyway, we'll just quit our jobs, lay around, twiddle our fingers, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because the world's going to end soon. And the Apostle Paul wrote to them, and he said, essentially, this is paraphrasing, but there's, there's no one like the Apostle Paul to tear a strip off someone. He said, you know, get a job, support your family, care for the widows and the poor. You have a job to do here and now. And again, that is central to why we care about a changing climate, because it is affecting real people today. And there's a biblical message, you say, a biblical underpinning there. It is. So all the way from Genesis, where it talks about how humans have responsibility or dominion over creation. And again, you know, people have taken the word dominion and distorted it. But if you look at a CEO who has dominion over the, a company, and that CEO runs the company into the ground and just leaves it a smoking ruin, we wouldn't respect somebody who exercised dominion in that way. So whether you call it dominion or responsibility or stewardship, it's taking care of and being responsible for the growth and the well-being of this planet in Genesis 1. And then it goes all the way through the Bible till the end in Revelation where it talks about how God will destroy those who destroy the earth. So there are themes woven not just throughout the Bible, but throughout every major world religion, talking about caretaking or stewardship of nature or creation, and also talking about caring for those who are less fortunate than us. How can you maintain any kind of, of, of optimism, of brightness, when you look at the science and when you see from year to year the changes in the world? I mean, I, I think of the recent New York Times piece, The Decade We Could Have Saved Earth, and, and how scorched earth that felt after I, I read it. Uh, where, where does your optimism come from if it's there? When I look for hope, and you have to look for it, hope is not going to find you. You have to go out and look for hope. And I do that actively on a daily basis. And here's where I find the hope. I find it in people who are taking actions from small to big. I find it in solutions that are ingenious and incredible and far beyond anything I ever imagined. Oh, give, give us an example of a person or an ingenious solution. Leave us with a little bit of a nugget of hope. Yes. Well, I'll give you a small example. I live in the second most conservative town in the entire U.S., Lubbock, Texas. I go to the Lubbock Women's Club, which is, you know, the conservative bastion of the Junior League of Lubbock, Texas. And we talk about how all these wind farms are being put up on people's land and how they love them and how this, this older woman who looked, she was about probably about 85, came up to me afterwards and she said, 
I am so excited they are putting in some of these turbines on my land and on my neighbor Mabel's land. We're going to take our sandwiches and our stools and we're going to sit out there and we're going to watch it. I'll take pictures and I'll send them to you. I am so excited about this. And then you hear about crazy solutions like uh, the ones that they're looking at to actually take carbon dioxide out of the air and turn it into fuel. Or the fact that there's the first negative carbon power plant in Iceland that creates energy and then turns the resulting CO2 into stones that you can use to build with. There's stuff going on that you wouldn't even imagine. And that's why we need everybody on deck. This isn't a climate scientist thing. Yes, we're good at diagnosing the problem, but we need the engineers, we need the business people, we need the investors, we need the people who are good at communicating this through the written word, through art, through music as well. We need everybody on board to give us a vision of the future that we want, because that's what's going to give us hope. Do you pray about this, Catherine? How could I not? Would you share what your prayers are? I I pray for specific people. I feel that um, that God often acts uh, very quietly in, in changing our minds on things that we might not be willing to change them on. And so I often pray for specific people, that their eyes would be open to various concerns or to certain possibilities. And um, I pray for various efforts that are going on, that they would be encouraged and they would, they would have what they need to keep on going. Because hope versus fear is really the situation that we're in today. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, we spoke in 2018 on Tuesday. Her new book comes out. It's called Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. Thanks for spending time with us. And thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Monica Castillo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.